All right, here we are. Another weekly dose of Common Sense here at Common Sense Ohio. And you can check us out at commonsenseohioshow.com if you're curious about prior past, saying the same thing there, see what I did? Prior past episodes of Common Sense Ohio, trying to make sense of the world in a world that seems like it's lost its common sense. Uh, So those who want to... uh, and by the way, we do have a sponsor, Harper Plus Accounting. We had uh, Glenn Harper here from Harper Plus last week talking about what he did. We thought it was going to be like a five-minute little introduction and he could sit along and do whatever, but we ended up making accounting fun, or at least interesting. It was interesting. It was very interesting. Yeah, uh, was. And really? he obviously, at Harper Plus, they don't just do your transactions. It's not like the guy flinging the signs and circles on the side of the road. He actually does some accounting. You know, they give the, He's my tax accountant. He does tax accounting planning. So that means in July, I know where I'm going to be in uh, in in October, and then in October, I know where I'm going to be in December, and you know, do the math from there. The best part was uh, his answers about Hunter Biden and how how he is not being charged with some of those uh, tax evasion years because they timed out. You know, they, yeah, they intentionally timed those out, but it's not just charged. Well, he was talking about a statute of limitation on filing tax returns versus what I do, which is criminal defense. They let the actual statute of limitations, I think, on some of those things roll. Although that does go from the date of discovery. There's nuances. Maybe we'll do a breakdown on that, that one it, day. It, we, we got into more than just straight up how you fill your forms out. That, that That's all I meant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We did a lot more than that, and it was a lot more interesting than that. So believe me, if you're hearing, I know everybody's thinking, you know, right. oh, accountant, this is right. going to be awful. Trust me. It's worth a listen. So anyway, I didn't give the date. It is 10-27-23, 10-27-23. And Norm, you got some guests. You see, Norm just brings people in at random. I don't even know where they find it. Anyway. No, well, we got some guests. Why don't you introduce them, and uh, we re- will. Uh, yes, sir. It's uh, going to be a fascinating discussion, I think. Anyway, uh, for sure. So, returning today, we have uh, um, Master Sergeant uh, Stephen Walter, retired USMC. He was here uh, discussing Lima Company uh, last month. Uh, he's here today as a forty-year uh, uh, public servant on the Columbus police department retired as a Sergeant. So he's a double Sergeant Marine Sergeant and a CPD Sergeant retired. And Steven is known as the goat amongst, uh, the, the men and women in blue <laughs> He is, uh, I'm embarrassing him, but, uh, other people have told me that he is considered, uh, pretty much the ideal of, of how to be a good policeman. Um, and then today, our special guest is uh, Brian Steele. Brian is also a sergeant, I believe, uh, and he is executive vice president of the Columbus FOP, which uh, more accurately would be called Capital City Lodge 9, representing 28 agencies, the, the, the men and women uh, in the police department for 28 different agencies, Franklin County, and uh, why don't you hit the big ones, Brian? Uh, some of the, obviously Columbus. Yeah, so uh, 4,500 members, 28 agencies. We represent the Columbus Division of Police, the uh, the Airport Police, the Sheriff's Office, OSU, and a majority of the suburbs. Wow, fantastic! And uh, something that people may not actually realize, but the FOP, in addition to being an advocacy group, is uh, a straight up labor union. And That's- and I think you know. Uh, is it every three years you negotiate with the city of Columbus? Every three years we negotiate with all the cities that we represent. Contracts are generally every three years. So when's Columbus up again? Right now is yesterday was day two. This was week one of negotiations. Yesterday was day two. Wow. So it's intense. Yes. To say the least. Absolutely. Um, you had some uh, things that you uh, came to talk about. And then, you know, I, I would like to talk about policing in general. And then I'm sure Steve 
uh, will have uh, his legal point of view, which is obviously he has expertise in that. So why don't you, why don't you go ahead, Brian? You, you had some uh, current issues uh, to bring to the table and uh, go for it. Yep. So I've been a police officer 20 years and, and you uh, labeled Master Sergeant Walter. He is the GOAT. Well, there's no doubt about that. I've been to a plenty of retirement parties in my dime. Only one was a blockbuster sellout such as his. To this day, we still talk about his retirement party. <laughs> when everybody from the janitor to the chief of police shows up, you know you've done it right. So it's an well, honor Did they have to call to the police for that one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were going to put some police officer outside to have uh, certain chiefs maybe not be able to come in. But then at the last yeah. minute, the master says, no, everybody's welcome here. So that was awesome. So listen, I've been a police officer 20 years. I came on the heels of 9-11. Very, very easy to join after 9-11. Um, there was no shortage of recruits. Our nation was under attack. There was a calling to the police service, the fire service, to the military. I had just got out of the Marine Corps and I was going to college and I had no uh, aspirations to be a police officer. It was a calling to come join the police service. Circle back to 2020 where police have been totally demonized, vilified, and you're wondering why you can't get anybody to join this job, especially in the city of Columbus, we have a major problem. None of our young men or women are becoming police officers, and it's just that. And we could talk about all those reasons why. Well, you know, is a is a you brought up some interesting stuff. But is a, let me let me let me back up. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I've done criminal defense now for 28, 29 years, and everybody always asks me like, uh, people think I I think there's a perception that I don't get along with police officers. I don't get along with detectives. Uh, that somehow there's a there's a constant animosity. It couldn't be further from the truth. Now sometimes that happens. I mean, look, there are a holes on both sides. You know, no matter where sure. you go, you're going to run into people who are disagreeable. But you know, practically speaking, I have always had a good relationship with most police officers, especially the good ones. Uh, it's not uh, it's not that um, we 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 work on different sides of the field. But when either side is sloppy, it, it screws it up for everybody, right? Yeah, so, totally agree. Yeah. You know, uh, but with that backdrop, I, there was a time when during the riots a couple of years ago where I have a very close friend who's a Columbus police officer and he was called down there and he's a veteran. He's been around a long time. I'm sure you guys know him. I'm not going to re- bring up his name, but I texted him and I said, are you keeping things under control out there? And he goes, yeah, it's, you know, he, he made some comments. And I said, no, 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 no. I mean, the younger officers, are, are you, how are you able to keep them in check? Because it looked like to me that, because I walked down there and saw some of it, it looked like to me a lot of it was people sort of goading officers to do things. They didn't, you know, it's like everybody's human and police officers are human. And I think that's sort of where you're getting at where uh, we have a shortage of interest in police work now. Uh, so I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'll turn it over to you for that, that event. I think that's why you're talking about, we had this shortage. Were you down there? Was any, What's your impression of, of what happened there and what happened as the aftermath? Yeah. So first of all, you are absolutely right. There is no animosity between prosecutors, criminal defense attorneys. You have to be losing money. Uh, yeah. Prior to 2020, we averaged about 26,000 custodial arrests. We're about 13,000 arrests now. So our arrests have plummeted. Um, I have friends in the prosecutor's office for the city attorney's office that talk about tickets. We're not writing tickets like we used to. Proactive policing after 2020 or imagining policing, it kind of died. So uh, we don't write tickets uh, for financial reasons, but let's be honest, we pave our roads. We uh, there's different things other than tax dollars that we use to run our city. One of them is revenue that comes in from tickets, yep. and they're all-time low. Um, same with OVI. OVI attorneys, probably losing money. We do not do OVIs like we used to We because we're not pulling over cars like we used to because that was the direction we got after reimagining policing, right? We were basically uh, vilified for being a proactive police department, and now you have a reactive. You have a fire department. There's a crime. We come, and we do the best we can, and that's really it. Um, 
to go back to the start, I was down there. I served ground zero in protest and riots, and we had both. We had peaceful protests. We absolutely had riots. If you ever went down to the short north on the third night at midnight, it looked like Beirut down there. It, it was, was it, it was absolutely on fire. It looked like a bombed out village. And this is America. This is wow. Columbus, Ohio. But what happened after 2020? Instead of coming out and saying, hey, we might have got things wrong. We might have messed up some procedural things. We attacked the complete police department. We called for a reimagining police department. We brought in Baker Hostetler to investigate 160 officers. Out of those 160 officers investigated, one officer walked away with minor discipline for not filling out paperwork. Well, that was all over the news, wasn't it, Norm? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, it wasn't. Not, not it wasn't. wasn't. I mean, that, well, that stat's pretty incredible. I mean, that's a pretty incredible statistic. Just to set the stage, uh, because we have listeners in other states may not be familiar. Yep. So 2020, there was a major riot on High Street, which yes. runs through the middle of downtown. Windows broken, I think. Uh, the police used some tear gas. Yep. Right. And, uh, and then city council on their own without any kind of uh, decision by a court that said you did anything wrong. You meaning the police, sure. uh, the division of police, uh, city council set, settled for, I forget the, the amount. Was it eight million or 800,000? It was a lot of money it, and it was they a just lot of money. disgorged this money, uh, to people who were part of the riot. Sure. Who complained that the tear gas made him cry and, and choked him. <laughs> well, that's the whole point of tear gas. Tear gas made him cry. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I remember 200 officers were injured, millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. The state house was broken into, if how you many, recall. How many were injured? 200 officers were injured in that. Holy God. You probably never heard no, about I that. No, I never heard that. Never heard about that's that. That's amazing. So the important thing is now we brought in Baker Hostetler to investigate. We found <laughs> there was no misconduct or wrongdoing. We brought in uh, the Carter Report, former, uh, former assistant United States attorney Carter from OSU. We brought in the John Gunn college and a carter to investigate our tactics there was no misconduct by officers there were some policy changes that we could have done better and that's what reform is not taking everything you do and throwing it away just doing some things better we brought in the uh, wozniak garber special prosecutor to investigate officers actions they walked away with three misdemeanor charges uh a u.s judge marbley called us a department that ran amok well you ran amok with three misdemeanor charges one officer was found not guilty during a trial, and the second two were dismissed. The bottom line is misconduct cannot be hidden where it exists, nor can it be found where it does not. Gotcha. And this was an, a, a BLM Antifa-backed riot. Yes. Yes. Uh, on, on, uh, and, and, of course, traffic was shut down and uh, you know private businesses suffered. I know Steve, who has a property on High Street, uh, he was barricaded in here trying to, he, he was yeah. going to be a Korean uh, grocer well, and protect his uh, property. You know, I, I, police, I look at the police as part of the community, right? And I know you talked about proactive versus reactive, and I'm going to get back to that because that's, that's an incredible topic or that's a fascinating topic for me. But I came down here, I had a close friend who said, hey, look, it was Saturday after all this started. And he said, hey, look, you know, he took a picture of High Street and he goes, they're really close to your building. And I'm like, oh, you know, what do I do? Uh, you know, on the one hand, I've got you've got you got what I call beggar's choice. Do I come down here and try to um, defend my building? Do I come and then risk having to do something I don't want to do? Do I come down here and just watch? Uh, I I did come down here, and then I was talking to a lot of the property owners here on High Street, business owners. You know, we're just small businesses. We don't. It's not. I'm not made of money. I, I don't have the funds um, to replace all the windows in my building when they're smashed out. 
uh, or replace things in the, in the building that are stolen if they are. And I've got insurance, I guess, but you know, I couldn't go to work on Monday if that happens. So we were all left with this choice. Do you know, do I go down to Home Depot and buy a bunch of sheets of plywood? And then it was like, do I screw it into the bricks and then try to patch those? Or do I screw it into the aluminum window frames and ruin those? You know, what, what choice am I going to make? Fortunately, I chose to do neither and I didn't have anybody smash the windows. By then, they had sort of pushed everybody north. And that's, I think, what you're talking about up in the short north. But it, I, the point I'm trying to make here is that the community suffered here, not because of what the police were doing, but because uh, it was permitted to let this stuff happen. And I came in the next day on Sunday, and uh, I met a friend down here in the studio, and he drove by Katzinger's Deli. And he sees an older gentleman, probably the owner of Katzinger's Deli, out there with a broom, sort of look forlorn and I think almost in tears, sweeping up the mess that they had created. They smashed his windows. Cat singers, you know, they smashed his windows. This, th- there's nothing, that, that didn't gain any attention for any cause. That was just crime at its uh, fundamental nature. And I think, you know, instead of saying we need to stop this, people were sort of encouraging it. I know I'm making a speech, not really asking a question, but uh, as a result of that, uh, you, the police get blamed in large part for that, not the offenders. There were very few prosecutions. And then you use the term reactive versus proactive. I'm going to let you talk about that a little bit because I've seen it in my practice of law and as a building owner down here in Columbus. So talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how it works in the community. So proactive policing, for example, I'll give you reactive. Reactive is an officer sitting in a parking lot waiting for a call, right? Kind of like a fireman does, sit around waiting for a fire. That is not what the community expects of a police officer. Your fundamental job is two in the morning, you drive around, you look for cars that are swerving because you want to find someone who's impaired, a drunk driver, and you want to remove them from that street that night. I think that's what the community expects of you. Um, The community expects officers at three in the morning to be driving up and down alleys in challenged high crime neighborhoods, looking for somebody, looking in cars, looking in windows. That is proactive policing. It's the broken windows theory. It is proven to work. When you remove the broken windows theory, which we've kind of done post-2020 because some uh, just labeled it racist, which is completely offensive and, and, and nowhere close to what it is, it breaks down what law enforcement does. And then you go from 26,000 arrests to 13,000 arrests. So, Brian, Brian, explain the broken windows thing. I, I know Mayor Giuliani in New yep. York had the thing about graffiti is that we're, we're, we're going to get rid of graffiti because then the next, if you leave it up, then the next yep. thing. Would you the, explain that? The theory is if there's a building that says has it a broken window today and you don't repair that window tomorrow, someone's going to throw a rock through the next window, then the next window, then they're going to start graffitiing. We use that here in Columbus with cars. When you work first shift in some of the more challenged, low socioeconomic areas, one of the main complaints of the residents is the car broken down on the street right? The car breaks down the street. The tires are now deflated. Now a litter of kittens move in. All of a sudden, a drug user is now using it to take shelter. There's prostitution acts. There's a reason why we want to go if that car's abandoned and remove that car from the street. It's a quality of life issue. It's an eyesore. And if you looked what happened the last couple of years, we were no longer doing that. We were given order not to remove cars, not to impound cars because the impound lot was full. Instead of just managing impound lot and moving the cars, we left the taxpayer with just a row of broken down cars on the street. That's a perfect example. Yeah. Wow. What, what, what do you, would you talk a little bit about, cause I know you talked about it's like patrolling and, and getting proactive, but what about just the police presence? Because I remember a time when I started practicing law back in the nineties where 
the officers sort of knew everybody in the community. And, and even though they, there was almost as like this cat and mouse game to some extent, you know, where, look, we know you're up to something, uh, but we're here, so you're not going to be able to do it when we're here. I agree um, with you, Steve. So I, my business was in Hungarian Village, and uh, there, would, there would be police on bikes or walking or in patrol cars, and I would see them regularly. And they were there to basically say, hey, bad guys, we're, we're in the hood here. But it was more than that. It was, I don't want to call it friendship, but they knew people. They knew that yeah. they knew each other. Like the police officers knew the community that they were policing. Is that still going on? To some extent, yeah. To some extent, no. It used to be uh, the sergeant and I were having a conversation. When we came on, there was a cruiser district. You were assigned, let's just say, eight blocks of a community. That was your district. You were responsible for that district. You did not leave that district unless uh, there's an emergency called you. In about 2012, under Chief Jacobs, when she was here, she got rid of cruiser districts. So now officers did not have a small geographical area. They had a larger one. Unfortunately, in my opinion, you lost some of that ownership, right? You were no longer that that eight-block radius police officer. You're now police officer, you're police officer policing three or four miles. We have a short staff. When you have a short staff, you have to fill the cruisers first. You lose the walking patrols. You lose the bicycles. And they're so inundated with runs, it just becomes like a triage system. The officer, kind of like you go in a doctor's office, he does not have all day to talk to you. He is just banging through patients. The modern-day peace officer now is taking so many runs a day because the call service is up and the manpower is down. Unfortunately, they don't have time, and that's what we're losing in this profession. So you said go back to 2012 when the cruiser districts were sort of eliminated. What was the reason for that? Because you know things don't – look, it may not be a good reason, but what was the stated reason for it? Um, I don't recall exactly why the, the the chiefs did it at the time. We were creating new precincts. We were expanding. Um, they took a new precinct out east. They added a new precinct up in uh, the northern end of the city. I don't recall exactly why they did rid of them, but they did rid of them. It looks like we might be bringing them back, which is the good news. The current chief right now and her her executive staff, they're looking at returning cruiser districts. Is that is that uh, the same as or affiliated with what is called community policing? Is it get kind of the same idea that you have officers assigned to integrate themselves into a community, get to know the people, you know, become a resource on a regular basis? Is that is that uh, sure? Sure. An officer is 100 percent part of the community. Sometimes I'll hear an activist say something about, you know, you come into my community. I say, well, this is our community. I'm part of the community. The clergy's part of the community. The mailman's part of the community. This yeah. is my community too. So let's work on it together. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, story I told on one of the shows is uh, there was a picture in a local uh, paper where um, out near where I live, uh, in not my town, but uh, somebody had called uh, the uh, Licking County Sheriff's on uh, some kids playing at a. They were on some kind of uh, playground you know, like at uh, two, 12, 1 in the morning, right? And all they're doing is playing basketball. So they, so the deputy went out there, and guess what he did? Started playing basketball. He started playing basketball. That's yeah. awesome. He, yeah. did, he did not arrest them. He did not tell them to go home. He's like, listen, I get it. You're, you got nowhere to go. You're, you're full of energy. You're young men. You, you know, some common sense here. Yeah, right. we get that call all the time. Uh, the midnight call, I mean, you'll hear it. Someone will call and complain because of the noise of basketball. And you'll talk to the caller and you'll say, hey, I, I understand. It's keeping you up. We'll go talk to the kids. We'd rather than play basketball, but we understand you have to sleep and we'll have the conversation with the kids. Hey, we appreciate what you're doing. There's nothing wrong with you doing. Unfortunately, it's keeping your neighbor up. 
usually at this point, someone comes out with a cell phone camera now and holds it up in her face and says, what are you doing to these kids? Why are you harassing them? They have no idea why we're there. Wow. But that's just the reality of policing now. Wow, that that's unbelievable. You know, you were talking about the, the broken window theory, and maybe it's, uh, I'm trying to connect a couple dots here. I have noticed this building, which I've had my practice in for a number of years, it's it, my litmus test for the health of the city is how much trash I have to walk by when I go to the front door of my building. And it seems like it's, it's growing and growing to the point where if I don't do it daily and there's probably trash out there right now, it just, it, I can't keep up on it. And it wasn't like that even just five years ago or four years ago. It wasn't like that. Is that part of this broken window theory? A lot of things we changed. So number one, COVID, what happened with COVID is what do we do with prisoners? We let, we literally let prisoners out of prison and where did they go? They went to broad and high and they started walking the streets, the streets to your neighborhood, right? I don't say you take a homeless person. I don't think a homeless is a crime. I think you get homeless people the help they need. But when you let convicts out of prison, they're going to go back to doing what they do, which is offending. And we've seen that time and time again. And this neighborhood, it kind of looked like zombie land on after 2020, right? Or after COVID. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. Uh, 100% bizarre. Um, listen, we could do better. We also did a summons lieu of arrest. It used to be if there was a misdemeanor crime, we could take you to jail. Then the city attorney's office uh, through Chief Quinlan, they came up with a summons lieu of arrest. Right now, and if there's a misdemeanor crime, let's say a homeless person refuses to leave your property, we are simply supposed to give them a summons and say, please leave. Yeah. If there's some persistent, they continually do it, well, then you ask a supervisor permission to take them to jail. Again, I'm not suggesting that you arrest homeless people, but if they're in that scenario, he's in front of your building in your vestibule refusing to leave, well, then you have to go to jail. Yeah. And, you know, the other the other thing I've noticed as part of the health of the city along these lines, I have a parking lot in the back, and it wasn't that long ago that, that look, the parking lot's a constant battle. People want to park there. They think they can park there for free. That's a different story. But there was a guy back there parked, and he clearly wasn't doing anything that was lawful. You know, I mean, there, there's a certain look that people have when they're engaged in illegal transactions, and he was one of them. And, you know, we went up, and I said, look, man, you got to go. He wasn't going to leave. Um, I had no confidence that I could call 645-4545 and get somebody here. I tried, and I was on hold, and I was this, and I didn't want to call, like, the emergency. Like, it, 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 it just didn't feel like I had any recourse whatsoever and that's just as a guy hanging out and with a building in the community. And uh, I, I guess I don't expect an answer to that other than just to say, it seems like things are on the decline. Yeah. So I'll tell you an answer. Number one, I'm sorry you went through that. That it's embarrassing as a division officer. I could just tell you it is not that patrol officer's fault. His, no, I'm not blaming yeah, him. Oh, right? I know, yeah, no, yeah, I know yeah. you're not. I know Because we're the end users. I walk up to a house, they'll say, hey, I called you three hours ago. And I always say, number one thing I say, I apologize. I apologize on behalf of the city of Columbus. I just got this call now. But you're right. There's not much you could do that that person. And uh, we virtually legalize narcotics in the city of Columbus. I don't know if yeah. anybody knows that. F4, F5 narcotics, we're not even indicting. The, an officer used to be I could charge you. If you had a bag of crack on you, I would charge you with the crack. Now we're not even charging it. We're calling a detective bureau who handles the F4, F5 narcotics, low-level narcotics. Um, the prosecutor's office is not even indicting it. And that's the problem now, now you have individuals because they have to feed their F4, F5 crack habit, heroin addict. They're breaking into your cars. The car break-ins mm-hmm. in this area, it's astronomical how many cars. And we're not coming. If you call us because your car broke in, the city's going to say, hey, I'm sorry, call this phone number and, and make a report that's going to go nowhere. It is absolutely yeah, It's pro forma just to give your insurance company so they have something to, to work from. And, you know, it's funny you said that because I just told somebody recently – I, I got a call from another attorney in town and he was called on a, on a narcotics case down in Southern Ohio somewhere. And I was like, you know, I haven't had a dope case 
in years. I mean, a, a couple here or there, but like there was, I always had two or three big either state or federal dope cases. And most of those started with F4 and 5 arrests of somebody who got caught who said, I bought it here, I bought it here. The task force would get involved. They would uh, work it up. Usually just not, not even with using snitches, but they'd get the first one, get the information, go to work, and they would develop cases. And I, some of my best friends uh, in the business were task force cops, uh, either DEA or local cops or whoever involved in the task force. And we would work cases together. You know, I would defend them. And there was a couple of times we had to go to court and trials, and et cetera. But mm. there was a there was always a big dope case. Now there's none. And I you can't tell me it's because there's no dope on the streets. I just, yeah. I can't accept that. It, it's for the reasons I just laid out. As a street officer, you would sit down the block, usually through having good relationships with people on the street. And sometimes it's criminals. Sometimes the, the, the prostitute on the street, you know she's committing a crime, but you have a good relationship with her. You might buy her a, a cheeseburger and a cup of coffee on a cold night, and she might say, hey, that house right there is selling narcotics. So as a, as a proactive police officer, we would sit down the street, and the mass sergeant knows this, you'd watch the house. You'd pick off two or three individuals coming in, hitting the back door, coming out. You get them with low F4, F5 crack amount, and you turn that over to the investigators, and next thing investigators have a major crime going on and they're just working their way up that food train without going after F4, F5 dope. We've lost that. You've lost it. Right. And it's not even that. And the, here's the funny thing is very, if, if I got hired on an F4 and F5 possession case, it's not like those people's lives were ruined. They were actually helped. And I'm not saying charge people with crimes that'll help them, but I'm sort of saying that, you know, it's like at the same time, they come into my office. It's a come to Jesus moment where look, you're a user, you've got a fork in the roads here. And maybe two out of 10, you can get back on the right track. Or maybe it's a college kid, or maybe it's somebody who should be in college who isn't, or maybe it's somebody who should be working who got this addiction and they're not. And now the system gets them an intervention in lieu of conviction, or maybe even just the threat of like, oh crap, I got to tell my mom and dad I'm charged with a felony. And then all of a sudden it turns them around. So it's not like you're helping people by not going after them. You're, you're doing quite the opposite. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Listen, the FOP, we're not to lock you up and throw away the key people. If there's a way to get you back on track, that's absolutely. Uh, I freely talk about my mother had issues growing up um, with substance abuse. My uh, my father was in and out of prison, ended up taking his own life, was a drug dealer. I mean, he went one path in life. I went in the other path in life. So I, I, I understand some of the things people go through. But if you're a repeat violent uh, offender, you can't walk the streets. If you can't yeah. beat your narcotics habit and you are robbing people to feed that, you can't walk the streets. Well, yeah, there's I mean, an argument to be made there, right? That if you let those people go, that's what they become. Because sooner or later, you've got to get the dope. And that's going to ha- and it, that becomes the most important thing, and, and particularly opioids, and I've seen it with meth too. It's like those drugs have a tendency to grab people by the throats, drag them around, and make them do stuff they would never thought they would ever do in a million years. And like knock off a, a, a pawn shop, or, or I'm seeing a bunch of smash and grabs now of vape shops of all things. And it's like those people, they're just normal people who got addicted to drugs who need it now. And it had it, you wonder what would have happened if the system intervened, and I'm not even saying with programs, but they committed crimes and you knew it and you didn't do anything about it. So how long do you tolerate it? We lost a police officer here about 10 years ago. He, uh, it's, it's the same kind of Cinderella story. Got injured, got hooked on uh, painkillers, oh, right, for yeah. a back injury. When we knocked, uh, got rid of the pill mills and started cracking down on it, went to heroin, next thing ended up robbing a bank. Oh and he, he was a police officer yeah. that, I mean, he got fired, but yep. man, we all know him. And it, it, it just shows you like what, what can happen once this gets a grip, which is why you have to enforce it and either get you help or incarcerate you, one or the other. Yeah, the, the story, your, your family story you alluded to just reminds me of that current situation in Nashville, you know, where the, the chief of police uh, 
before his when his son was being uh, um, looked for when they were all points bulletin, he asked that the police officers arrest his son, get my son. He committed these crimes. He's he's wanted. I believe at that point he was wanted for murder, and uh, you know, and and then he got involved in a shootout and was killed. And yeah. and uh, and so, you know, there there is a law enforcement person of uh, you know of some note, like your family story, that um, you know, you guys see it from both sides. You you do have humanity. I mean, no, there's bad people in every profession, sure. but most police officers I've encountered, you know, if you, if you keep your hands visible and, and you, and you treat them with respect, you're going to be fine. The, the thing that I can't get over is this current trend. And Steve in one of our shows called it learned behavior that some of these young people like that situation at the Kroger in Blendon Township, where what would cause this person after being ordered 10 times out of the car to then get on the accelerator and, and, and motor her way, you know, into a, a police officer. It's a deadly weapon car. You, you know, you can kill a lot of people with a car. And, and uh, I just don't understand what's going on in our society that, that we have the, the complete and total, lack of respect for when you see those blue lights on. I, I think you had something one week you had maybe five or six Columbus police officers hurt in traffic incidents where they were controlling a, an accident scene or arresting somebody or yep. whatever. And it just seems like, it seems like we have a whole generation that thinks you're all racist and you're all bad guys and you're out to shoot black men and all of these crazy memes that turn out not to be statistically accurate. I don't, I don't, I don't know how you guys do your job, honestly. You know, for, for every one person that comes up to me and says a cab or F the police, I'm not exaggerating when I say there's another 50 that say, Hey, thank you for your service. Thank you. What you're doing. Keep your chin up. Good. And that's what keeps you going. Well, and that's a good point. Like a lot of times the loudest voice is the one you hear, but it's not always the majority. The loudest voice is no. not always the majority. So you know, it's like you can, but what Norm is getting at, which is an interesting phenomenon, is that it's not just that we have officers, I guess behavior is being modified on both sides. I think police officers, and you can, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I think you guys are now approaching as a routine traffic stop a little bit differently because the people who are getting stopped are approaching a little bit differently. So if I think fundamentally that it's unfair that I ever get stopped and it's a result of some nefarious racist or other um, uh, 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 intent, then I immediately feel like I don't have to comply because this isn't fair. And I, I also think that uh, I have a right, I, that we've sort of given people the thought that they have a right or a privilege to push back. And I see it on YouTube. I see it on TikTok. I see people saying, you don't have to roll down your window when a police officer comes to your car. You don't have to get out, which is nonsense. It's absolute crap. I see lawyers giving this advice. And you know, people ask me, what do I do when I get pulled over? I was like, say, yes, sir, no, sir. And if you're in the right and they're in the wrong, call me after it's done. I can't help you on the side of the road when you don't comply and end up with your face in the dirt and handcuffs. I can't help that scenario. I can help you if they have pulled you over for a wrong reason or if they searched your car and they shouldn't have, call me. And then, by the way, shut up and don't make any statements. 
Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, listen, you're absolutely right. And that's how it's supposed to go for both criminal and administrative. If the officer did something wrong, we have body cameras. Everything we do is reviewed. Yeah. If you have a complaint, if you think the officer stopped you and didn't have probable cause, whatever it is, call your attorney, call you like you said, and then report it. Report it to the division of police, report it to the inspector general, internal affairs, and then we'll investigate it. And if somebody did something wrong, they will be held accountable. There's no doubt about it. Um, I love the body run cameras. When we first got them, like most oh. police officers, it was something new. We didn't really well, understand. Who wants, to, who wants to have their life documented? You know, it's a scary thought. I imagine well, it it exonerates eighty percent of the complaints that come in are exonerated from the body worn camera. Uh, I, as a criminal a defense attorney, it's got to be tough to represent someone with DUI. Then we come with a camera that's got the entire stop, all the probable cause. It's all on there. It, it's only helping us. Um, this is where it hurt the community, though. I believe. Let's go before body-worn cameras. I pull over a stop, Oakwood and Whittier, right? Challenge, low socioeconomic status, uh, neighborhood of color. I pull someone over. They have, say, an expired license, two kids in a car without car seats, no insurance, and let's just say it's person of color, and she has a warrant for jaywalking, something minor. Yeah. Pre-body-worn camera, we are going to follow her home. We're not going to take her on a jaywalking warrant, mm -hmm. right? We're not going to put those kids in the Franklin County system. Uh, we're not going to tow her car. She doesn't have much to begin with. She's not a bad person, right? She's just, she doesn't have a pot to piss in, just say. Now with a body camera, you're going on your warrant. If I don't take you to jail for the warrant and it's on camera, now I could be hauled uh, contempt of court. You're, you have nowhere for the kids to go. They're going to children's services. We're towing your car. We just hurt the the community, yeah. I, I believe. You, you have took less, away less discretion. Ability. You took yeah. away discretion. discretion. Yeah, I, I often... When we have created a system of justice, both at at all levels now, where discretion is being eliminated from the equation, and that's what scares me a little bit. I hear uh, I, I, there's a term. I, there's a, there, I have a saying about this. I won't I won't say it. But when when I go to a prosecutor's table at court, or I talk to somebody uh, who's got authority over a case, and they say, "Well, our policy is that we don't do this with these kind of cases." I think a different word. I don't think policy. I think coward. Right? You you don't have taking away discretion eliminates fairness in the system because there is no rigid rule. You know, we've tried that historically, just go back to like uh, the Nazis and Stalin. And, you know, you have, you have a rigid rule, you do this, this is what happens without any sort of playing the joints or discretion. It's the system breaks down and it breaks down for the reasons you're talking about. So you can't take the old woman home and, uh, and, or the, the single mother home and, and, and help her and say, look, Call somebody tomorrow and fix this warrant. All you got to do is go pay your ticket, and it goes away. You know the, that doesn't get to happen. Now, on the other hand, there's a there's a as you said there's a there's a plus to it that we can look at it, and maybe from the police officer's side, I can say this guy didn't do anything wrong, or if you did, I get to call you on it, and I can defend the case with it. So I guess it's got its pros and cons. But really, what we're talking about is why would the police get in trouble for doing something like that? And and that goes down to leadership. Um, you know, I, I think it should be encouraged to exercise some discretion like that, but you can't. You know, everybody's come up with this rigid, it's got to be this way. And whenever that happens, the back, it tends to break instead of bend. 100%. I agree. Well, the, uh, you know, this, this, this concept that the police are the, the enemy of, uh, particularly of uh, minority communities, is, is such a terrible falsehood. It's, it's such a, a pernicious thing, and, and Steve mentioned leadership, and this sounds political. I don't mean it to be. If George Bush had said this, I'd be saying it about George Bush, but it turns out that President Obama, when he was in office, 
would leap to a conclusion that the that it was a wrongful uh, action by a police officer. And it started with that beer summit that, that it was at an Ivy League uh, college, Cambridge. Cambridge, thank you. Henry uh, Louis Gates. And then, you yeah. know, and then the young man that uh, that, that uh, he said could have been my, like my son, uh, that that uh, it, it and and then uh, the Ferguson thing where uh, I mean, the, the guy was trying to take the gun away from the police officer. What I don't know what he was supposed to do. Let him have the gun. And it turns up the hands up. Don't shoot. Never happened. Biggest a, lie ever told a black jury vindicated the police officer the white police the people in the community knew it was not a a a bad police officer but it became politicized and steve mentioned leadership when you start at the white house and 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 you start to say the police are the problem it's no it's 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 like uh it's like uh well no it's not just that the police are the problem the police are the only problem yeah, and and the, look, that every the, the, so the problem is them. is multifaceted, <laughs> yeah. right? It's a multifaceted yeah. problem, and in as, as Thomas Sowell always says, it's you can't it, hardly ever is one outcome attributable to a single cause ever. You know, so you can't just say that. And it, it, part of, I'll tell you the flip side that I saw going back 10, 15 years ago. There was sort of an I have always said in the in the wake of all this backlash against the police. It's like, look, we have rules that keep the police in check already. We don't need any more. You just need to enforce the ones we have. We have a fourth amendment. We have, um, uh, all these standards that, that if you go to court, you can vindicate it. But now it's, instead of allowing that, uh, the system wants to do something even worse, which is, all right, we'll just get rid of the police or we'll just, we'll just change the, how the police operate. We'll defund them. That whole movement. And, and I'll tell you, I, I, I have a hypothesis insane. that is unstudied. But I handled, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of police stop drug cases, F4s and 5s, right, that we don't litigate anymore, where, frankly, cops would get up and they would engage what I would call test lying So I know that sounds like a harsh term, but, you know, you're going to you're gonna shade it. Maybe it's before body cams, actually. So you could shade it and make it seem like the like maybe they smelled marijuana, maybe they didn't, maybe whatever. And, and even when I exposed it, and it's not every case, obviously, but even when I exposed that, they got the the judges backed the police and didn't take action. And I think that left an impression on people a little bit. Like my clients look at me and it's like, this is BS, man. This is not what happened. I'm guilty. I get it. But this isn't what happened. It's not right. And and I think that that created its own backlash and it, it created its own problems. So if we just enforce the rules we have, in other words, I think the system would fall into place the way it needs to. Get out of the way and let the rules work. It's already there. I, I, you remind me of a story. I, told, I talked to someone yesterday, but you just hit it when you said, hey, I'm guilty. I get it, but that's not happening. I talked <laughs> to a mother who wants some help, and I referred her to the Innocent Project, and there's also, an, a, a, right here in Columbus, there's something that helps uh, cases if they're not guilty. She had said, look, my son is 100% a major level drug dealer, but in this one case with Columbus police, we don't think what they said happened, happened. So she's admitting that her son's a drug dealer, admitting his son should be in prison. But in this one case, she goes, I don't think the officers are right. And so she called us the FOP. She had no one else to, to go to. This is not what we do. But anytime someone's going to call, we're going to give them the resources. So we referred them to these nonprofits. But it just made me made laugh when he said well, that. And I should probably give the other side of the coin. Uh, this, is, this is a true story, too. Back in 96, 90, probably 96, was my first felony jury trial in Franklin County in front of Judge Bessie. And my client was charged with RSP auto. He got wasted at a bar and got in a car with a bunch of people and the column was stripped and uh, it turns out it was a stolen car and he was in the back seat drunk as a monkey uh half passed out the car gets pulled over 
everybody scatters and they find my client hiding on somebody's patio on the west side. I don't remember it was a hilltop, but somewhere. And uh, they arrest him, charge him with RSP. Well, of course, the system moves so slowly that a year and a half later, we're going to trial. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my client always said, look, I don't, I didn't know that car was stolen. I had no idea. And you guys know that in order to make an RSP, yeah, you got to, you got to know. So it was, it was a good, it was a good defensible case, like a law school type Receiving case. stolen property. Just our, our, so, yeah. Receiving stolen property for an auto. Well, RSP I'm auto. just saying, cause yeah. people may yeah, yeah, not yeah, know. Yeah. You got you guys in the in the legal business have this jargon. So so we go through the trial, and the prosecutor goes through the whole direct examination of the stopping officer, and you know, in the very last question, now do you recognize the man that you found on the patio hiding behind the grill there? And the, and the cop looks over at me and looks over at the at the prosecutor's table. It's like I don't recognize anybody in this courtroom. It's been almost two years. I can't say that's the guy. I'm just going to be honest. And it, it it I was blown away. Because I talked about test aligning, and that's what I was talking about. I think a lot of people, and it's not just police officers, everybody would do it. Oh, yeah, that's the guy, because he's sitting right next to me. It's obvious that's yep. the guy. And uh, he didn't. He was, I don't, I don't remember his name. I could probably look it up. I always wonder what happened to that officer, because hats off to him. You know, I, I went sure. up to him afterwards. I said, I'm blown away. I, I'm a first year lawyer. It's my first jury trial. I cannot believe this. You know, it, it, you know kudos. And uh, so it, it works both ways. And I think the, the point you made earlier, Norm, is like, everybody's human. Police officers are human. Everybody's human. And people are, are prone to do something. It's like at the checkout aisle and they give you something, they don't ring it up. What do you do? Does everybody go back after they get home and say, oh, I didn't pay for this. I'm going to take it back. No. I mean, some people don't, some people do. So Steve, let, let me, uh, this is turning into a love in and it should, cause yeah. I do love the police and they're, they're underpaid. They're overstressed. And, and I, I have a lot of compassion for the police, but I think you and Brian might have a disagreement on bail reform. And before you have to go to court, Steve, you're, you're going to get called out early here today. I'd like to have a little dialogue. Uh, Brian was telling me of, of a recent uh, court decision uh, that may have changed uh, when bail is appropriate. And you may have some differing views. I'm not going to say I bet that. we agree on more than we disagree Yeah, so on. Why let's, let's, Brian, why don't you talk about this new uh protecting the community is, is, is one reason for bail now. Sure. So I'll start by saying, I don't expect to agree with everybody. I don't, my wife and I have a great loving relationship. We don't agree on everything. Every time <laughs> I say, if we, if we agree on 60% of the stuff, that is a very healthy uh, friendship and relationship. Yeah, sure. So we were talking about kind of uh, the, the bail reform, how we have a problem here in the city of repeat recidivative, you know, violent offenders uh, getting arrested Police are doing their job, they're being prosecuted, and they're being given a low bond. We've seen it time and time again. And then recently, what was it, the DuBose case, um, where we could use public safety as an exception, it was about what, six months ago, yep. maybe a year ago it changed. Now the judges can use a public safety exception to keep the person locked up. Some judges are using it, some judges are not using it. Our issue is when we put someone in jail for say a drive-by shooting and they're given a $25,000 bail, an ankle monitor and a piece of paper that says, please don't commit another drive-by shooting. It, it, it's really wreaking havoc on the, the community and particularly communities of color. Because if we're gonna be honest, which no one wants to talk about in the city of Columbus, the majority of your victims and violent crimes are from the community of color. The majority of your suspects statistically in Columbus are from community of color. So you want to have this bail reform because at least in the city, it was kind of like, well, the bail reform bail is racist. They, uh, people of color can't afford it. Let's get rid of it. I think it hurt the, the same people you're trying to help. 
Well, again, I think it, this is back to the point. We had rules in place that worked. Um, they just weren't getting enforced. So it could be, both things could be true, right? It could be that bonds were too high for certain cases. And I have represented a lot of folks where I would hear a judge shout out a bond at court. I'd be like, come on, this is, this is absurd. It doesn't need to be this high. And I've also had cases. Like got, how high, Steve? I'm just curious. Like what kind of numbers? Like for what kind of crimes? Well, I would say I'll, I'll give you a formula, not a number. Okay. High enough where somebody couldn't make it. Hmm. Because if you're Donald Trump, you're going to make a million dollar bond. If you're a guy on the street with no money, you're not going to make a $10,000 bond. So gotcha. one of the things I always tell a judge at a bond hearing is, look, any cash bond here is tantamount to no bond because this guy's indigent. He can't pay a bond. But he's not a danger to the community. Uh, he shows up in court. He's kept in contact with me as an attorney. He's got family support. And I would give the credentials that were the criteria that might uh, convince a judge to give a, a low bond or a recognizance bond. There are other cases where in the back of my head, I'm thinking there's no way this guy should be released on bond. He's a bad dude and he should be held um, because I, and, and, you know, it sort of worked for about 15, 20 years. And then all of a sudden it's changed. Now everybody's getting out. Um, and actually, that's not true. It's almost flipped. Like people who shouldn't get out are getting out and people who should get out are not getting out. And I can't, I don't know the reason for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it, it, there might be some sort of inverse race relationship to that at this point. But uh, it's it's just bizarre. You know, I, I don't I don't quite get it. I don't think it's racist to hold somebody uh, or have a high bond for somebody uh, one way or another, white or black. I mean, I think it, it, the case should speak for itself. Um I don't like the idea, though, that as a policy, we shouldn't have bond, or as a policy, there should be a high bond. Again, I think judges are pretty good at discretion on this stuff, and lawyers doing what I do should be able to advocate the criteria necessary for a judge to make a reasonable decision. But uh, I, So, I, again, I don't think we disagree much on that. No, um, I don't think we disagree at all on that. Yeah. So, Brian, <laughs> um, I read one of your press releases. I was on the website, and uh, one of your press releases – you talked about a case, if you recall this, if, if you don't, I'm sure there's you know hundreds of these, but it was a recent case, a guy named Sagittarius Lamar. Could you, he had a rap sheet, he had two felonies pending, and he went out and shot three women. You know, uh, I mean, please go into, people don't understand why it matters, why that guy, for example, that's an example of a guy Steve would probably also agree, you know, a violent, prior guy he, he should he should stay locked up but he had an ankle bracelet if, he, he if was a repeat mind. violent offender that never should have been on our streets and he was given a low bond and he was let out of jail and he went what repeat he went and did what repeat violent offenders do they re uh, reoffended yeah. um this is over and over the the woman at osu the the poor professor who was stabbed and murdered in her own home the individual who stabbed and murdered her went on to go down to dayton carjack a car go down to georgia try to rob somebody's house and got shot. He's in the hospital right now. He was let out the day before on a low bond by a Franklin County judge, $25,000. And hey, please don't shoot anybody again. So again, individuals like that, bond is not punitive, right? We know that. If you're like, as, as you said, if you're going to go to court, you're going to cooperate, you're going to stay in touch with the attorney and you've not committed a drive-by shooting, a felonious assault, a rape, there's some crimes. You can't be back on the street. I always said, did we forget Reagan Tokes already? We have the Reagan Toke Act. 
That individual never should have been on the street. No, that's the co-ed at Ohio State University. Yep. Reagan, that was her name. That was her name. And 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 I, and, and what happened there? I, I keep, don't remember. So I, the facts. I keep forgetting the. You got a nationwide audience here. So Reagan Tokes was a young lady. Was an OSU student. She was a bartender. Um, she walked. She left the short north area. Went to her car. She was abducted by an individual. Or I won't even call him an individual. He was an absolute animal. He was on an ankle monitor, released from prison. He laid havoc the couple days before, right here in the area of your studio. He was doing robberies in the uh, in the um, uh, German village area. So he abducted her, took her down to Grove City. Over the course of three or four hours, sodomized her, um, put out cigarettes on her, and ended up killing her. Um, by an individual who never should have been on her streets in the first place. Yeah. How do you let someone like that out? Well, you know, it, I, I agree with you 100%, but uh, maybe we disagree here. I, As a wise judge once said, it, most laws that are named after somebody are bad laws. And the, the idea is, and, and maybe gun control is a great way or a great analogy. I hear it all the time, quote, we got to do something. We got to do something. And usually when people say, particularly politicians or city leaders say, we got to do something, it means what they're about to do is not really going to help the problem, but it's going to look like it's going to, like they're trying. And that's what matters. And then you get all these adverse consequences or unexpected, uh, unintended bad consequences as a result. And Reagan Tokes is a tragic scenario. That guy never should have been released. But uh, it also, implicit in that law is the notion that somebody in the system could have known that that would happen. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. But further, it's also implicit in that law that going forward, we're going to vest certain people with the authority to know whether that'll happen. And my guess is that's impossible. And my guess is that it won't prevent the something similar from happening, at least in the in the anecdotal world, again. It'll happen again uh, just because there's bad people out there. So I think my point is that the dragnet of Reagan Tokes has made my job a, a terrible pain in the ass because you look back in 96. Six. We had all this. We had the, the sentencing reform where if you got five years, five years is five years. We got rid of uh, indeterminate sentencing. Uh, so when I went to a, a, a court before that, I would have to say, look, dude, we're going to plead guilty. You're going to get five to 25. And he's like, well, what does that mean? I was like, it means somebody, so probably some college, right out of college guy at the adult parole authority is going to determine when you get out of jail. And he's like, what the hell does that mean? I was like, well, good luck. Um, and we said, well, our judges are better able to make that decision. So if somebody wants 10 years, they get, or if somebody deserves 10 years, they get 10 and that's it. Now we've gone back to sort of that indeterminate sentencing because of Reagan Tokes. And I think it's gumming up the works more than it's helping. Not to say that that's not tragic and not to say that somebody couldn't have caught this one. Um, but it's uh, the, the, the thought that we can fix it with a law, I think is where I, I disagree a little bit. Yeah, no, I appreciate I appreciate that. Um, what I like about Reagan Toast is now we're actually monitoring the ankle monitors when you're on parole. Before, right, the issue was he had an ankle monitor, but nobody was actually monitoring that, and he was yeah. out on parole. I like the fact that now you have people on parole monitoring. I got no problem with that part. So look, we could we could probably yep. find common ground there. Sure. So, but that's not what's happening. That's that's not the only thing that's happening. So Reagan Tokes now says the adult parole authority now has discretion to hold somebody or not release them after their stated prison term. They can hold them more if they determine somehow that the guy's a bigger risk. I have a problem with any body or organization or individual making that decision because I think there you end up with um, bad outcomes or, or people staying that shouldn't and people getting released that shouldn't. Yeah, I appreciate that. But if they just said, look, everybody, if, you're, if we're going to be on an ankle monitor, well, sure, 
somebody should watch what they're doing. I would think, right? That's that's the purpose of an ankle monitor. I should have uh, I should have asked this earlier, but since you're in negotiations, I'm just curious. Could you give us like what the starting pay is for a brand new, you know, fresh out of the wrapper CPD officer, right out of the academy, the the police peace officers training or whatever yeah. whatever the process is so so it changes between 28 agencies we'll take columbus columbus starts i want to say at sixty-seven thousand, and you top out at a hundred thousand at your fifth year okay and so your take home you know it's going to be what two-thirds of that roughly yeah about that yeah okay and you're down over 200 we have as of last week we've had 1761 on we're authorized 1996 so okay we're wow. roughly with 260. Well, you know, Steve, this might be a question for you because I, my mentor was a guy named Bill Meeks, and, and I, I was very privileged and, and blessed to be able to work with Bill and learn from him. And he used to say this, you know, everybody's got their back in the old day stories, but he was an old school criminal defense lawyer. And he say, you know, back in the old day, we had really good homicide detectives. We had guys in, in homicide assault who knew what they were doing. Uh, they knew how to investigate a case. And it was always cleaner in the courtroom when we had, when we had that kind of work. He would work together. Um, and then I've seen... A couple of homicides. I'm working on a homicide right now. I know a very close colleague of mine just finished a homicide case, and um, it wasn't the kind. You know, the I'm not seeing the same experience, or even it's not even experience. It's, it's almost like people don't care anymore. You know, it's like the, I, I don't even know if they. It's not that they don't care. Like things aren't getting done in the investigative side of things. And how do we replace? Like what? It, it almost seems like there's got to be a plan to replace the guys who are leaving, who had experience investigating cases. And then younger guys coming in who seem maybe they don't have the on the job experience or maybe they don't have the training. I mean, am I am I just uh, am I seeing phantoms or is there a problem there that uh, that you think exists? Okay, um, first of all, back in the day, say the late seventies, early nineties, by no stretch did we have the number of homicides relative to the Fair population. Fair enough. That's a that's a great variable but, that I hadn't considered. Uh, we had um, 200 and some homicides in 2020 and uh, broke that record the following year. We do what we can. Now, obviously, the DNA has helped a great deal, and we've expanded our homicide squad to deal with the numbers, but uh, we do the best we can with what we have. Gotcha. Well, and I'm not saying it's all bad. I just, uh, it, it feel. I guess what I'm really trying to say, it feels like exactly what you said now that you just said that, like they're overworked. You know, I had a $100,000 uh, theft that occurred out in Lincoln County. And the perp lived over here off of Parsons. Well, my office isn't too far from there. Right. And uh, he was renting space out in Lincoln County. And then he cased out who had what in their storage units. And one night he and his adoptive son, so he's going to bring him along as a criminal, uh, just rock, you know, clipped the locks and, and took all this stuff. So we had, we had physical evidence. We had ring video of him fencing these goods. And because it was multi-jurisdictional, he, he lived in Columbus. He stored some of the stuff in Columbus and we had photographs. It occurred in Licking County, and then the state patrol apparently handles vehicle theft in, in some ways. So the bottom line is, and this guy was a recidivist, the bottom line is nothing happened to this guy. Nobody even issued a, a, an arrest warrant. Norm was beside himself. 
Norm I'm, was calling me all the time, like, what like, do I do? What do I do? Nobody we got this guy on video fencing the stuff, and, and, and nobody will take the case. And I'm finding that property crime is just kind of like, uh, I mean, if you got murders to solve, I get it, and rapes to solve, I get it. I mean, well, prioritization. Well, yeah, high felonious assault numbers also. Yeah, so as a citizen, it, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm sure merchants at uh, Easton are frustrated with people just, you Well, know, that's a good, I mean, you've, just, you, you just opened stuff. the door for that. It's like you see this stuff going on out in California and San Francisco. Is there anything yeah. like that happening in Columbus where there's these, like, theft rings that, uh, that are not getting policed due to some policy? Well, well, sure. I mean, we'll use the um, the, the young lady that unfortunately lost her life in Blended Township. She, it's proven now she was part of a theft ring. That's what they were doing. They were going around stealing liquor bottles. Um, Ohio Liquor Control or, or uh, the investigative unit knew about it. I mean, they didn't have her that day, but they knew. And because a lot of stores aren't prosecuting. If it's a, a low level, they'll call it. What it's killing is the mom and pop stores. The mom and pop store can't afford to lose, you know, uh, one bag of chips every single day. Maybe the Home Depot can, but they're turning that cost over to you, the customer. Yeah, we're paying it one way yeah. or another. We're paying it. Yep. And then we saw that also last summer. I think it was probably last summer with juvenile car theft rings. I mean, I, uh, I, the local news called yeah, me the in one Ki- of my Kia boys or whatever. They yeah. Call they called me in one an interview on that. Like, what are we doing? I was like, you got to prosecute them. I mean, this is very simple, right? If you tolerate this, it'll continue. I mean, look, is it just joyriding? No, this is beyond that. This is like kids in an organized fashion or maybe adults using kids because they can insulate themselves, uh, in an organized fashion, stealing people's cars. And you know, it's easy to say that that's targeting races or this or that or the other, but when you're the person who lost the car, it's not so, you know, it's not so pleasant. Let, let's do some quick hits. Maybe we can get this uh, in before Steve has to rock. Um, how do you feel about constitutional carry? So the FOP, the state FOP officially opposed constitutional carry. The reason we opposed it, we did not believe and still don't believe it was going to rise crime. We were more concerned with someone with a weapon who's never trained a weapon, never practiced a weapon. We were more concerned that somebody's going to shoot themselves in the foot than, than shoot us. I could tell you, uh, I do not know a single case in Columbus where a violent crime against a police officer was committed by someone with a constitutional carry. Okay. Okay. Uh, just go down the list. Uh, does the FOP have a position on the death penalty? Um, we don't take an official position on the death penalty. Uh, as a person, I would say if the crime warrants it, sure, but we don't have official position. Okay, so uh, no, no policy on that. No. Um, issue two, legalization for recreational mar- marijuana. What, what do you think about that, either as an organization or you personally? So we, we oppose that. We oppose the uh, issue two. I could tell you we've pretty much legalized marijuana in the city. It's a local ordinance. It's a $10 crime. We don't, with the legalization of hemp, you're very unlikely to ever get charged for uh, marijuana by Columbus police because it's a $10 ticket and the cost to test that to see if it's hemp or marijuana is just the costs are astronomical. So unless it's bulk product, trafficking, task force stuff, I don't even know the last time marijuana ticket was written in the city of Columbus because wow. we don't yeah. know what it is. If you say it's hemp, it's hemp. This is this is my dad always used to say. Look, it, it, it's easy to it's easy to win an argument. All you got to do is change the definition. So you use the term like we've legalized it. They would say we've decriminalized it. What are they really doing? They're not enforcing any marijuana crimes. Yep, and, and they could, and they could. Um, we were talking earlier show prep about uh, illegal immigration, uh, human trafficking. Uh, some of the other kinds of, I mean, face it, the people coming from really um, uh, violent or, or I should say maybe 
very different cultures, probably don't really understand how America works. Maybe that's part of it. But the idea that if I have this straight, that a, a, a CPD pulls a guy over for OVI or, or speeding ticket or something, and he, is, he or she is in the country illegally, there's not a darn thing that local police nationally can do about this, right? You can't arrest that person and hold them for ICE to come get them and deport them. You're, you're just a spectator uh, to this invasion that has happened. Uh, just in the last three years, I think they estimate 8 million people have, have come into the country illegally. So they're criminals. They're here illegally. But you, you can't enforce that crime. So I'll just speak of Columbus. As a local law enforcement officer in the city of Columbus, we do not enforce uh, immigration laws. So under your scenario, I arrest an individual for drunk driving. As I fill out that form, I ask him, are you a, are you a U.S. citizen, yes or no? It just does not matter what he says. I simply check the box. I take him to jail. I do not, as an officer, I don't inform, uh, I don't inform the U.S. government, uh, Homeland Security, or used to be known as ICE. If they are a violent offender, if they committed a murder or a homicide, something like that, then we would send the, uh, it's called a DRO, detention and removal order. We will fax that DRO over to Homeland Security just to let him know we suspect this gentleman's an eagle or female is an uh, eagle, legal immigrant and they're arrested for this violent crime. And, and then Norm, what I, like on my end, if I get that guy, if I get a bond set for a case like that, which that would be like a million dollar bond and you know the guy's not gonna make it, but even if he could make it, now we get an ice holder or a, an immigration holder so he couldn't get out otherwise. So a lot of times there's a race to the court. You know, we wanna get him, we wanna do it quickly before Homeland Security gets a hold of it and puts a, a, a impossible detainer on him so he can't get out. Wow, so, so you're in the middle of negotiations right now. One of the things that uh, Mayor Ginther wanted to insert into the contract uh, last go round was to give the civilian review board a power to actually, you know, fire police officers to, to come to a conclusion that this person needs to be disciplined all the way up to being let go of where, and, and that's not the way it works now, but that's what he wanted in the contract. Uh, is he still pushing for that? Is that still up uh, is that an item? I know you're against it, but is that an item that uh, City Hall still is trying to shove down your throat? So just to kind of rephrase this or recapture for your audience. So I represent the police union. We're in negotiations with the city. We have a collective bargain agreement. It's the terms and conditions of our employment. One of the ground rules we set day one is we do not discuss active negotiations. We'll just discuss it when it's over. Oh, fair enough. So we can't actually talk about it. Sure, but no, it, I'm trying to push him into something <laughs> can't do. I see it, it, right. it, it was brought up last time and we opposed the civilian review board having any kind of uh, subpoena powers or, or actual um, authority because the contract clearly states all immediate discipline comes from the immediate supervisor and eventually recommendations are all the immediate discipline recommendations from the immediate supervisor up the chain of command to ultimately the chief of police. Gotcha. Okay. And is it the city safety director that actually has the final say on firing? If it's a termination, the chief can recommend anything over 120 hours suspension or termination automatically goes to the safety director for their final authority. Um, it's kind of ironic, though, um, The Baker Hostetler is the law firm who investigated the officers out of the riots, and the lead investigator, Miss Jenny Edwards, wonderful person, I like Jenny, she is now the, the lead uh, attorney on the city side negotiating our contract. So the last thing I have, well, that's interesting. Steve may have some, some stuff, but the last, last thing I have uh, 
is I, I was reading about this case, I believe in Hilliard, where the officers there found a newborn baby in a five-gallon, like Home Depot type of contractor bucket mm-hmm. with the lid on. And the baby, the neighbors said they could still hear that baby mewing, you know, as it was dying. So they found a dead fetus. Mm-hmm. And the officers, or, or the chief there was talking about the officers were very distraught. Uh, this was the kind of ugliness that they, they can't unsee what they saw. And I wonder about the mental health you know, I, I knew of a police, I grew up in Cincinnati. I knew of a great police officer that committed suicide, just a, just a wonderful man. And I don't know the reasons could have had nothing to do with him being a police officer, but I, I hear, you know, military police, uh, suicides are up. Mental health issues are up. We have this, please, I'm not drawing any analogies, mm-hmm. but they're currently looking for, you know, an ex military guy uh, in Maine that had turned himself in for mental health. And I'm just wondering what tools does the FOP or your health plan, what do you have to help officers, you know, even family like Joring and Morelli's families, you know, the two officers who were just shot, uh, reporting to a domestic where they'd been there before, opened the door and a guy, bam, bam, just kills both. There's all of this stress, and you see the seamy underside of society, you meaning police officers. I don't know how you guys deal with that. It's It's got to be a load to carry that, and I wonder what assistance is out there. Sure. Well, I'll start off with this. Uh, someone asked me once, an activist, they said, do you believe black lives matter? I said, absolutely. Sometimes I wish they don't. And they looked at me in horror and says, what is that supposed to mean? I said, I can't tell you how many uh, people of color's bodies I stood over, how many children of color I've stood over. I said, maybe if they didn't matter, I'd get a good night's sleep one night. And the person was like, I never thought of that, right? Mm -hmm. Because our experiences are are a reflection of our ideals. Um, We've got better than when Master Sergeant started this career. Certainly when I started this career, when I came on 22 years ago, my suicide awareness class from our instructor was, uh, hey guys, if you kill yourself, do your family and your department a solid and leave your gun cleaning kit out so we could chalk it up as an accident. Next slide, right? Yeah. Now, now we have a wellness center. We have employee assistance programs. There are some great nonprofit organizations in town called the, uh, the Brad Foster F- uh, Foundation. If you are an officer or a fireman with some kind of substance abuse, some kind of post-traumatic stress, they will pay your mortgage and the FOP charity organization, the foundation and the fire uh, foundation will help you get a plane ticket and put you into some kind of rehab or mental health. We've came a long way. A lot of that was because of the war in Iraq. We saw these Marines come back, these SEALs who were coming back saying, I have a problem, I need to talk to someone. Some of the toughest guys in the world, and I think that helped police officers. When you see people like that that have issues and talk about it, well, maybe we're talking about it, and we are doing better. Stephen, I think you wanted in on this. If there's one universal I've seen in policing, it's officers with stable marriage foundations and outside interests who handle the realities the best. In my case, I was a member in 1975 of the Columbus Area Leadership Program. I served on the ACLU board. Um, coach. You were you were president yes. of the local ACLU yes. chapter in right. Columbus. That's the only police officer maybe in the whole country who ever held that position. Pro- That's amazing. Um, and then um, also coached uh, girls basketball at Grove City High. Balance 
And then uh, I joined the Marine Corps Reserve, and that was that. But see, we didn't have the programs to which uh, Brian alludes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Hearing you say that, it, it it's like it's not that – maybe it's not so much that officers are, are – well, how am I going to say this? I think we all have these problems right now. I think what you what you just said is I think is very fundamental to a a healthy society, which is a stable family, um, outside interests, uh, you, you know, a community involvement. Uh, those those are the things that sort of anchor us, I think, in a mentally healthy way. And if you take those things away, as we have in our society, maybe across the boards in in a lot of ways. Then we're creating high risk problems, and then if those individuals go into policing, it just gets exposed quick, more quicker. quicker. Um, and I see the same thing for lawyers, right? Lawyers are horrible, they're terrible statistically for mental health issues and suicides and alcoholism and 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 abuse because our our families fall apart and all this stuff happens. Um, and I think I think maybe these high risk professions just expose a bigger problem that we're dealing with in our society. And I think that also is showing up on the criminal side. I think we're seeing more crime as a result of that. So, and then not to say that the officers don't have a stressful job. It is to say that they do, and that causes that exposes these otherwise weaknesses that we have. Jump in, Steve. Well, part of that, if you uh, watch TV and. Uh, one of our crime scenes, you might see the officers chuckling a bit because it hurts too much to yeah. turn that inward. And they're as helpless as the victims are. Yeah, yeah. gallows humor. I mean, how else can you handle it? Well, you, well you, in my day, you crawled inside of a bottle of Jack Daniels yeah. and your buddies um, took you out drinking and yada, yada, yada. And right. That's about all we had then because yeah. we were tough guys. Well, uh, Brian, will you come back sometime? We'd love to have you back. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe after the contract negotiations are finished, uh, you can you can tell us where things stand. you're welcome here as a guest anytime. Yeah, it's been great. Um, thank you. Thank you, you for know, what coming. We, what we try to do here, just to sort of wrap it up, is we try to get a common sense discussion going about all these problems. And I think, you know, it's hard to do that in the context of an hour, in the context of a show. But it, it's sort of, uh, I think, part of what we were just talking about, it's lost. You know, we don't have interaction with individuals anymore where we actually get to discuss stuff. It's throwing bombs through social media or Twitter or whatever. And um, we always invite others to come down here and give me a contrary view. I learn something every time I sit down with people, and and maybe even more so today than than normal. So thank you very much for showing up, and yeah, thank, thank you, you. Stephen, for for your reprise uh, appearance here. Well, very pleased to help. Thank you. Yep. All right. Well, this has been Common Sense Ohio, uh, and you can check it out at commonsenseohioshow.com, brought to you by Harper Plus Accounting. If you want to read Norm's blog, and I, I know thousands across the globe are reading it, you can check that out at Common Sense Ohio show.com uh brett who is uh unable to sit at the table today but uh, he's got a blog i got one that's uh, trailing last at zero but i promise there'll be post eventually. eventually i keep promising that it's gotta happen uh so until next week we are coming at you right from the middle at least until now